and welcome to the Busyness Podcast. My name is Emily Austin. I'm the founder and CEO of a London-based PR agency called Emerge. I'm passionate about launching and scaling small businesses and have been fortunate enough in my 13-year career to work with some of the most exciting, category-defining brands in the world. I started my business when I was 22 years old, fresh out of university. Since that time, the world has got louder. Our expectations have become greater and our lives have become busier. Fobbing friends off with the stock answer we've all become accustomed to, I'm so busy, is an attempt to compel, conflate and convince. But when did being too busy become a mark of status? Why is the goal to never have any free time? And just what the fuck is everyone doing? Are we setting unrealistic expectations for future entrepreneurs and business owners by encouraging them that a maniacal approach to diarising is the standard? This podcast aims to give you a realistic, detailed insight into the honest stories, the failures, the triumphs, the intricacies, the mistakes, the comebacks, the fuck-ups from those set to make their mark, the leaders movers and shakers, trailblazers, and game changers. We cover imposter syndrome, hiring and firing, call-out culture, anxiety, global growth, daily routines, and knowing when to quit, choosing the best in the busyness to help you cut through the noise and optimize your success. Hello and welcome to episode six. This week, I catch up with One Rebel founder and CEO, James Balfour. James has an incredibly thoughtful and resilient attitude to business and has taken many lessons from overcoming personal battles into his approach at work. We chatted about diversity in the fitness industry, how to build fierce company culture, how being Instagram famous has affected this sector why accountability is missing in many people's lives, how to be resilient in the face of challenges, and what makes a good leader. I recorded this in the third London lockdown as James was over a year on from when he first had to close the doors to the popular fitness clubs. We talked about bouncing back and the devastating impact of COVID on the health and fitness sector. James talked candidly about how the government has really forgotten about this sector. As the clubs reopen and new sites are announced, it's unsurprising that One Rebel has managed to bounce back. I hope you take from this episode some really considered insights from an incredibly successful entrepreneur. I wanted to give a bit of backstory around, you know, before we talk about One Rebel and wondered if you could tell me a bit more about what you were doing before you founded One Rebel with a view that you can sort of explain how you ended up at the beginning of that journey? I, I guess my sort of, I guess, career really started in many respects when I was 11. Um, when I was 11, my father founded Fitness First. He um, sort of had come from nothing and worked his way up the ranks in a business called Living Well, which was, which sort of back in the early 90s was fitness clubs in Hilton Hotels. And around the time of the first housing crisis, he told one of his colleagues, he had this idea of a, an affordable fitness concept because back in the early 90s, um, you really were going to hotel gyms or kind of com- country clubs in their respects. And he told his pal on his desk that he had this idea and his pal very quickly went and dobbed him into his boss. So my father lost his job and became redundant during the housing crisis. And um, he then decided to take the leap and put our 
house that we had um, up for grabs with the banks, took out as much lo- as many loans as he could, and bought a derelict squash club, club in Bournemouth, um, which became the first Fitness First. And I sort of, we, we as a family moved down there. My sister and I went to a grammar school because I couldn't afford um, any school fees at the time. And and I and from age eleven, I guess I had sort of fitness and the fitness industry, um, you know, around me, and I was learning biosmosis, you know, throughout my teens. But as I went through school and then university, almost the last thing I wanted to do was then get into the fitness industry, having been around it for so long. And I I, I really wanted to go into the army full time, and my dad wanted me to sort of you know understand finance and business. And we had sort of a few discussions and there was a bit of a compromise and I ended up joining the city as a stockbroker. And at the same time, I joined um, the Honourable Artillery Company, which is a, a TA unit based in the city. And I absolutely loved the Honourable Artillery Company and stockbroking was interesting. And there were lots of fun stories I can think back to, but it, it, essentially, I, for me, it was quite a toxic environment. And I didn't really feel like it represented what I wanted to do with my life. Having said that, for a young man or for a young woman to have three or three or so years in the city is exciting and interesting. Um, and often you learn the most out of things that are not run well than you do from things that are run very, very well. So I learned a lot of a lot of a lot of about how not to run a business by being in a city and certainly how not to create a good culture or a team environment. But um, it was sort of my love of adventure and mountains that took me out of the city because I left after three years to um, complete my lifelong goal of climbing Mount Everest. So I spent a year on the mountains going from one, one constant to another, getting ready for Everest. And after I'd completed that, I had to work out what I was going to do with my life. And it was just at the time that my father had exited Fitness First, having, been, having grown a business for about 23 years. And he he introduced me to a guy who used to work with him who wanted to start something. And basically, together, we got talking. And the next thing you know, um, I was out in Poland with this guy. And we decided that we were going to try and set up a, a kind of a fitness first, like a fitness second, if you like, but in places where fitness first hadn't gone. And where a country was, you know, really... You know, Poland in those days was very exciting. There was a lot of investments, a lot of development, and we felt that we could get in there, move quickly, and build a good business. And for the next seven years, we grew a fitness business up to 70 clubs across seven countries in Eastern Europe, Turkey, and Southeast Asia. But fundamentally, we can probably talk, talk to this later, I, I fell out with my business partner over time, and I just felt that I wasn't proud of what we were doing anymore. And in the end, I walked away from that business and came back to the UK to, um, to start One Rebel. And that was, what, 2013? Uh, the first club opened on January the 19th, 2015. So I, I had returned to London um, a year before um, to, to basically you know, conceive the idea of my co-founder, Giles Dean, and to find sites and to look for investments and all the rest of it. Because you know, all those things tend to take a little bit of time, but it took a year before we got the first club open. And interestingly, you created a concept really that was an upgrade of what your dad created because well, you were saying that the sensibilities of the customer were changing to being more of a pay-as-you-go model than a, than a 
uh, subscription model. Well, if you take sort of my, my mentality at the time, you know, I'd fallen out with my business partner. We had created what I you know, look back on now was a lazy version of Fitness First. And whenever you try and create a brand, it has to have some level of integrity and authenticity. When Fitness First first started, it was a reaction to the fact that there wasn't a, a club for everybody. You know, they coined the phrase affordable fitness. Um, you know, that was essentially the first example of a budget club, the likes of Pure and, and the Gym Group that you see now. Um, and it was access to anybody who's welcome. Um, just, uh, um, the business that I then created with, with this guy afterwards, you know, there, there wasn't that authentic pedigree to why we were doing things. And so there's no, there's no surprise really that we called it One Rebel because at the time we were saying we want to rebel against everything we had done before, you know, from yeah. signing people up to 12-month contracts to focusing on sales tools rather than an experience. And so I wouldn't necessarily say it was an upgrade to what my father did. It was the complete opposite to what my father did. But I'd also say we weren't the pioneers. You know, we, we were inspired by the likes of SoulCycle and Barry's Bootcamp um, in America, who, you know, I would go to New York and I'd see these clubs and I'd think, well, this is something that I would like. And there are a number of things I liked about those concepts. First of all, they, they stood for something. And there's a phrase I like, which is when you decide, you divide. You know, if you decide you're going to go this way, not everyone's going to follow you. But those who do tend to love you and those who don't, don't take part. And that's fine. But they stood for something. Whereas a lot of the big box gyms that have existed globally for some time now tend to just stand for, you know, anyone's welcome. So it's, it's almost the brand is almost a bit anemic. You know, uh, it, you don't hang your hat on one particular thing. You just know the door's open. Whereas you know, the likes of SoulCycle and Barry's, they started acting like more like a retail brand. Um, and, you know, when, you, you're someone who buys certain brand of clothing or a certain type of car or a certain type of music because it's distinct. Um, and I think social media emphasized that sort of thing. You know, a lot of people would not necessarily take a picture going to the Hilton Hotel, but would go take a picture of So House because they believe So House stood for something that they wanted to be assimilated with or associated with. And Barry's and Soul Cycle did that, but also they they redressed the balance between the customer and the cons- between the company and the consumer in a way that I felt spoke to especially millennial consumer patterns so rather than locking people into a 12-month contract they said okay it's going to be pay as you go which meant you really had to be the best in class in every class to make sure people come back and i i felt very you know there was a freedom around that but also a complexity because it's like being a restaurant if you come to the restaurant and the meal is bad you're never going to come back again so it means you've got to work harder for that customer to to retain them and i felt the rest of the fitness industry had got lazy because they had depended on you know direct debits and contracts um so there was a lot that we were in and i guess that raises the standard across the board right if you've got if you know that five doors down there's a concept saying they're doing a similar thing you know that retention of that customer there's a huge amount of pressure on you as a business to do that yeah, I mean, competition always hopefully raises standards, but um, the typical fitness industry has been supported by this obsession with reoccurring monthly direct debit payments. And once we've got you to sign that contract, we sort of forget about the customer touch points and the daily experience that the customer goes through. I would say when you walk through the doors of One Rebel, there are probably 25 customer touch points from the way you're greeted to the shampoo and conditioner in the showers to the level of music to the the sweat towels you know all these things that if one is compromised the entire experience is compromised whereas an Mm -hmm. average fitness club that has locked you into a contract doesn't necessarily think about that 
minutiae and that detail in the way that we have to because we don't we're not going to get your money again if we disappoint you and I liked mm. that 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 felt good to me because then I felt well that's something I can be proud of and it was a lack of pride in my previous business that had really sort of made me be motivated to do something different and presumably those those gyms that work more on the subscription operate on a model where not everyone comes to the gym all the time their occupancy yeah. is quite low based on people not really being that engaged well, well this this is this is again you know i asked you the, the question would you be proud of this you know we knew um in the previous business and if you you know you take fitness first virgin active gym box equinox whichever one you want to list that's like this that 30 percent of your customers wouldn't come and but they would still be paying and there was this phrase sometimes about, you know, would you communicate with these people to try and get them back in? And the phrase was sometimes, let sleeping dogs lie. As in, you know, let's, mm-hmm. let's not wake them up because they, they might, you, might, you might remind them that they're paying and not coming. Now, that's, that's yeah. pretty awful, to be completely honest. When you're thinking about your relationship with the customer, that you'd rather not communicate them in fear of them actually leaving you. Um, mm. You know, it, it, that these were the things that f- that didn't f- um, feel right to me. And you know, the, the word disruption or being a disruptor gets probably too loosely thrown around. But when you have a business that is resting on its laurels in that sense, you know, God, you've got to admit it's ripe for for disruption. And you you said a minute ago that you had sort of borrowed a concept from the US, particularly you mentioned Barry's and SoulCycle. How important for you is the predictive market research in terms of keeping ahead of the pack, certainly in Europe? Because presumably, you know, there's, um, you want to get onto a trend before everyone else does and find a way to make it happen because the consumer in the UK will probably follow the consumer in the US. Is that fair? Yeah, I think the US has always been about five five years ahead of the UK and Europe, and the UK and Europe has always been five years ahead of Asia. Um, You know, what SoulCycle recognised, which gyms hadn't done for 40 years, was that the the experience and the money can be made from being the best in a bespoke class rather than looking at the gym floor being the revenue generator. And they were the first to take that risk and say, look, if we get the best trainers, the best music, we can charge 34 bucks a seat. Um, Now, you know, when when you look at what we've done, could you suggest that we've copied them? I think 100% you could could argue that. I I think, you know, you hope that brands evolve concepts over time and evolve one another by being competitive. You know, know, there are a number of different ways you can differentiate yourself from maybe a brand that inspires, you know, a new industry. One of the things that we looked at in particular was design. You know, every club that we operate is designed completely differently, whereas you know the soul cycles and barriers of the world tend to be a more of a cookie cutter model. Now, you could argue you know, that cookie cutter model it, it is better for your brand because there's consistency and people know what they're getting, or you could argue it allows it to become stale over five or eight years, whereas our brand might continue to continue to surprise its customers and have a more sustainable brand because we're almost reinventing it with every new club. You know, the great thing is people can decide for themselves. Um, you know, we also decided that we were going to have, we, we were going to not just do one concept, but try and be the master of you know two, three, or four concepts. Um, and beyond that, there's lots of little details and how you run businesses and what your goals are. But I think you know the, the general feeling that I have about fitness is you know, you know boot camp workouts are being done by the Roman army two thousand years ago. You know, no one owns the pattern to the press up. Um, but we all owe it to ourselves to keep trying to evolve an industry. 
And I think that the mm. problem you have almost when you become an industry leader is that the, the industry sort of homogenizes. It tends to come together following the leader and copying things. And so to remain the leader, you have to keep jumping out of the box and taking risks, which is, you know, which makes life harder, but also, in my opinion, much more interesting. Yeah, because, I mean, there's a very conscious decision from One Rebel to um, probably represent a more realistic fitness consumer, right? Like the wellness industry is embodied by figureheads like Gwyneth Paltrow. It has been criticized for being uh, very white, very blonde, very specific connotations, particularly from LA of a certain type of body and a, a green smoothie and all these kind of things. And what you've done with One Rebel, one of the first things you did was get a, an alcohol license <laughs> to demonstrate to customers that most people are coming in here so they can go and live a full life. And that probably includes going out. That's why a lot of the clubs look and feel a bit like a kind of nightclub. Is that Was that a very conscious rallying against something or was that just where you ended up it, with the brand identity? It wasn't necessarily rallying against something. I think it was also it was sort of being true to ourselves a little bit. I mean, myself and my business partner, we like being fit, but we also like having fun. And I think, you know, the, the rebel in everybody is I wish I could do both. Um, now, it's not for everybody. I think also over the last five years in particular, we've seen, you know, the, the drinking culture, especially in young people, change rapidly to when, for example, I was working in the city. Um, and and that's great, you know, and that's absolutely fine. But I think what we wanted to do is is to, you know, not just have Instagram posts of, of you know, rice and chicken, boiled chicken and Tupperware boxes, you know, to say, actually, look, I think you can have a bit of fun and still train. Um, you know, we, we don't pretend that we're not here to train you to become athletes in a certain discipline. This is around fitness and fun. Um, and also, hopefully, sort of being true to yourself. I mean, one of the things that I'm a big believer in is that, you know, all of the marketing and the shiny equipment is is fun and relevant. But really, the, the gym is the most honest environment in the world. You know if you're working out or not. Um, you can blame the instructor. You can blame the music. But if you come out there not sweating, you have to have accountability for what you're doing as well. Um, another reason maybe why I'm not that into the, the tech element of, um, of, of you know, counting calories and heartbeats because, you know, everything I've done from my adventures and expeditions in the past was about sort of putting your head down and, and, and getting the job done. And that means you've got to exert yourself and you know if you have or not. There has to be that level of honesty when it comes to achieving your goals. So you mean specifically the idea of sort of leaderboards and people competing. You, you think that that sort of... Um, potentially undermines the individual's accountability uh, well I, I think i think first of all you know in, in a world without those you know what are you relying on you, sh you have to rely on yourself and i think accountability is something that's missing in a lot of people's lives the mind is primary with everything that we do you have to make a choice when you go in, into something or into a situation to a circumstance into a challenge how you're going to treat that and we all look for crutches in life but really part of the journey i think through fitness and through many aspects of life is deciding what you're going to do and then actually doing it um there are other aspects of the leaderboards which can be very motivating but they can also be very demotivating for people at the start of their journey um you you can do something spectacular fitness wise or sporting wise or whatever but for someone who has never done this and they're, going, they're making the brave decision to come through our doors. I have more respect for that person who's overcoming many issues, many insecurities, many fears, 
and we need to support those people and them consistently coming at the beginning of their journey to find they're at the bottom of the leaderboard i think reinforces the you know the habits of of, of failure rather than success but if i could look that person in the eyes and see that that person has put in their blood sweat and tears you know screw the leaderboard i can see it in their eyes that they've worked hard and that's what i respect well yeah i mean i remember coming to a one rebel class many years ago and being told uh, affirmatively by the instructor that the only comparison you should make is to yourself a week ago not to whoever it is in front of you who's you know, three stone lighter and is two years ahead of you because it's sort of an incredibly reductive comparison to, and, and that's, you know, that's part of the issue with, you know, there's obviously tremendous value in the idea of the the soul cycle, you know, move as one, a group thing, but actually it does, um, it does take away that objectivity for an individual. And, you know, when you look at the data, you know a lot more about this than I do, but when you look at the, you know, we're so goal oriented as a, as a people. And when you think about, you know, some people are uh, trying to get, you know, in shape before a wedding. Some people have just gone through the worst breakup ever. Some people have been given terrible health news. Some people like there's such a variance on on the stories as to why people have walked through that door. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think we, we don't talk about the mind nearly enough. I mean, when I see people go on 12 week transformations, they're often cutting out alcohol, cutting out sugars, carbs, they're waking up at five in the morning, they're on these strict diets, working out, you know, achieving a huge amount in 12 weeks, but putting them, themselves through an immense amount of pain. And their decision to do that has often come from almost a sense of trauma, be it a divorce, that they were bullied at school, they were overweight, didn't like to go swimming because they didn't want to wear shorts or bikini. You know, things that can be ingrained in our psychology for such a long time. But we don't talk about repairing the, those psychological scars. We, we just look at whether they've lost, lost the weight. And I think that's sort of the wrong way of going about it. One of the things I like you know, in one rebel is, for example, maybe at the end of the class, you might, we might tell everyone to get into a plank position. Now, you know, once, once you're shaking and you're out of breath, there's no real physiological benefit for holding that plank, you know, another five or 10 seconds. But if the instructor gets down and is right up by your face and says, don't listen to the voices inside of your head, listen to words coming out of my mouth, you're stronger than you think you are, you can do this. And then you go further than you thought you had before. Whilst we know the endorphins of that class will last another 40 minutes after you leave it, the feeling that you've done something that you didn't think was possible will last with you a lot longer and will start building up your confidence to maybe try a different type of class or, or you know, to walk home that day rather than get the tube. And, and that building the confidence and actually focusing on the mind is far more, I think, important, especially at the beginning of your journey, than counting calories or, or, or pounds that you've lost off your hips. Yeah, and there's been a lot in the press recently about the backlash with um, the diet culture. And particularly, um, I know Jonathan Ross's daughter is someone who's talked about it a lot more recently, that this idea that um, ingraining in people this idea about restriction and diet and weight is an incredibly negative structure to encourage people to be healthy. Because actually, and, and speaking from personal experience too, you know, weight loss journeys the weight becomes almost the least significant part of that transformation and becomes a byproduct of making better, healthier, more informed, more structured, consistent choices that, you know, focusing on on those numbers can actually be quite, um, you know, they're, they're, they're often out of context from, from the wider benefit of, of that sort of exercise. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm very lucky with the way my attitudes developed because, you know, by doing things in the army or on mountaineering expeditions, 
I, I being in in shape was important, but being skinny was not. You know, I often needed extra fatty reserves basically to complete the things that I was doing. Um, so I always looked at fitness as in, okay, you know, if I needed to walk home because there's no taxis and it was 10 miles in the rain, how would I feel about it? Or, you know, could I do a chin up and get out water if I was pushed in and, you know, had to, you know was going to drown if I couldn't lift up my own weight? Um, and do I want to be out of breath going up a hill? Um, those were the things that meant something to me. Uh, a lot of people start their journey saying, I want to look good. Um, but the pain they can put themselves through is, is astonishing. You know, these, these very restrictive diets and the, the feeling of self-consciousness that they get from seeing other people on Instagram who seem to be able to have it both ways, um, even though that's often not true, seems quite excruciating. Whereas I think if you start with, okay, what type of, you know, we, we, we call it, you know what, what type of values do I want to have in my life? What type of life do I want to lead? How long do I want to lead it for? Those, I think, are much more healthy questions to ask yourself first before what do I want to look like naked, um, which can often be very self-defeating. Um, it's, it's, I, 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 you know, I worry about it because you know, when we think about social media, I, I do question whether we're part of the problem or the solution at times. Um, you know, we have to have you know, inspirational, I guess, marketing and pitches and communication. But, but it's very hard to um, talk about the things that I'm talking about now in terms of you know, focusing on the mind through a you know, quick Instagram picture. Um, but, but essentially, I think that's where, that's where it's all got to start. You know, making choices, creating goals, and, and also recognizing that they don't all have to be miserable. You do only live once. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, a good point. It, it can sometimes feel so restrictive and um, kind of demonic in the way that people adopt these challenges. The, the social media conversation is interesting because there's been undoubtedly um, an explosion of particularly fitness influencers. And I know a lot of personal trainers have profiles and there's often discord between different influences in the industry, right? Because it seems to me that the authenticity piece is really important. If someone is legitimately doing the work and talking about what they, and it's sort of positive, that seems to be inspiring and particularly the transformational stories. What people really rally against is the idea of in any sector, but obviously specifically sort of fitness in this instance, people who are, are not necessarily doing the work, but are kind of claiming that they are and they're setting very unrealistic goals, which, you know, is really unhealthy because they're not even achieving them themselves. You know, look, there, there are lots of um, very knowledgeable, very qualified trainers in around the world who don't have nearly the same social media following as maybe someone who, you know, likes to not wear much clothing and you know, create a big following. And I think that irks the people who've done the hard work and the qualifications and also you know, frustrates them that maybe these people are giving bad advice. Um, my message, my message to them would be, okay, that's life. You know, we've got to get over it. There are, there are lots of systemic issues in my view with social media, which go back to when social media stopped being about friends and moved to followers. As soon as that happens, the, the negativity that came out of that and also the level of narcissism, I think that you know, became part mm. of it, changed a lot of things for a lot of people, but also led to this kind of um, outrage culture that we see in the press as well, because suddenly the algorithms of social media realized that the more outrageous, the more interest, and now you could be forgiven for going on news every day and be feeling pretty depressed. 
I think you've got to work out, okay, what, what do I control in my life? You know, I, even in the midst of a you know, pandemic, I think there's so much to be thankful for. Um, you know, we, we, we live in the most amazing times. We, we, we're so lucky. We have food on, on our plates, shelter over our heads. We're not in fear of, 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 you know, violence like a lot of places in the world are. And, you know, we let the small things bother us. Um, and the, even the fitness instructors who might be frustrated by, you know, insta-famous people taking some of their, cutting some of their lunch, I would say don't be worried about that. You know, authenticity and, you know, your, your, your dedication to what you, your, to your craft will always outlive the sort of the, 15 seconds of fame that somebody gets um, because often and often more often than not they're they're sort of you know i don't want to use that use the word i was thinking but well maybe i should you know they're prostituting themselves often <laughs> they're often well, they're, they're, they're prostituting themselves often. no but but you know there's a pressure now you know there's been such an explosion of you know there's such a low barrier to entry for people to achieve perceived fame and i've always thought it's quite interesting if you think about you know if you are someone who if you took away Instagram, your entire business and self-confidence would cease to exist. I mean, you got a fucking problem. Like if that's the entire lens, because it's, you know, it's made up of imaginary people who are, are very fickle and it's a fantastic marketing tool. And obviously we use it for our businesses and a lot of other people do, but it's not reality. I think it's also a timing issue. You know, someone like Joe Wicks, um, you know, his timing was exceptional. Um, I can't see there being another Joe Wicks in the immediate future because because of his timing. Now, I think the, the barrier to or the bar as to what defines a, an actual influencer who's going to have the success that he gets is much higher. And I, I'd say it's more akin to now to the acting world. You know, for every, you know, for, for every Brad Pitt, there's probably a million people who are just 5% less good than Brad Pitt, but they're all unemployed. Um, you know, I think the social media influences will, will that that sort of trend will follow in that category too. And also, also, there's so much free content out there. As we sift through the nonsense and the chaos and the noise, I think people will soon revert back to what's local, what's authentic, um, what they can trust, and and those are the ones that will thrive. And just, you know, there are going to be lots of people out there who are going to make a quick buck and be more successful, more pretty, you know, more you know, more wonderful than you are. But mm. I think the key is, you know, if we live properly, we're going to be here for a while. So let's do something sustainable that you can be proud of. I want to ask you one more question before I change the the vibe. So um, we'll see how this one goes. But um, I'm interested in what you think about the idea of inclusivity in fitness. And I, I guess I'll give you a little bit of background to that question, just because I'm not really sure where I land on it. So as somebody who um, weighed over 100 kilos, lost 30 kilos, lost a lot of weight, what, you know, through going to One Rebel and showing up, I'm in huge support of things like brands like Nike having uh, fuller figured mannequins in their stores. And I'm full of uh, only positive things to say about more representation. Because when you walk into a gym, as you say, um, and you're at the bottom of a leaderboard or you walk into a store and none of the clothing is on a model that looks like you and you have this intense fear of your leggings being see-through and you, you know, if you're running on a treadmill, you feel every step. I think that lowering barriers to entry for people at all stages of their journey to get into fitness is really important. However, I also appreciate that 
there is an aspirational um, component to wanting and desiring to look like the people on the bike at the front of the class. What is that tension for you and how do you think about it in the business? Yeah, so it's a really good point. I mean, you know, most people when they come to any type of fitness club would, would, would they have an expectation of what that instructor or personal trainer will look like, right? And often because they want to see something that's maybe motivating or they can say, well, look at that person, it's possible, right? Um, so if we went the other way, maybe that wouldn't be so reassuring to somebody. Having said that, um, you know, I, I, I mean, I don't buy designer clothes anymore, but I remember in my early 20s when I thought that was important, I would sometimes go to a designer clothes shop. And one of the most humiliating in, in experiences I always found was when you had these sort of super good-looking people selling you those clothes, looking you up and down, kind of saying, you know, this isn't probably for you, mate, is it? And Yeah, move along. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and, uh, and I would hate for a customer to come to our class and feel that way from an instructor, as if they're being looked down and saying, well, look, actually, you're, you're not as blonde and as beautiful as I am so this is for you so how so what do we do about that well first of all the, the the key thing that I look for when I interview someone from being an instructor or even in head office it, it, when we have our conversation is what what sort of adversity has that person gone through and the reason I, I asked that question for a couple of reasons one because there's always going to be challenges in life and in business. And so it's key to me to know how the person in my team, my family is going to react when things are tough. But equally, if I know that a trainer in particular has at one point you know, been very overweight, so at one point got bullied at school for their looks, at one point maybe got into drugs or alcohol, but now is through the other side, that tells me something about that person, that if they can make that change personally, then they're more likely to convince me to make a change. I'm not that interested in someone who's always had life really good who's always been skinny or fit who's never really gone through anything that's difficult because anyone can go to the gym you know 30 minutes a day and get in, in with the right amount of dedication and time get into that level of shape but you know if you've if you've if you've gone on a marathon if you've if you've raised money for charity if you've overcome a, you know a, a deep sense of insecurity over the way you look or you're bullied at school or your father wasn't proud of you these are deep motiva- motivating factors that affects your day-to-day behavior and your outlook on life. It's more inspiring to me than their ability to, you know, boil chicken and rice and, you know, carry around Tupperware boxes. Well, yeah, and you make a good point because when you walk into a fitness studio, you see someone on a bike who's full of beans looking fabulous, radiating, going, I want to look like them or I want to sleep with them. Mm. And actually you forget that their journey to that bike possibly is a couple of years ahead of you and they've, probably overcome multiple things in order to sort of get to get themselves into that position yeah. and, and often as a customer when you go and see an instructor on you know ride by from in victoria being larger than life you, you you kind of you don't necessarily consider that person might be having a really bad day that day but they have to turn it on mm. you know because that's their commitments to the customer to you know to their to their experience that they deliver and again that takes a level of grit and determination if you just broken up with your boyfriend or girlfriend an hour before but now it's game time you know lights go down you've got to show up and do your thing you know that's i'm looking for people who who've got that sort of that that's those there's that phrase the calluses of the mind you know they, they, they become stronger through mm-hmm. adversity so they can show up and do what they need to do when when the time is asked it's an interesting contradiction i think because in so many other industries competency is seen as such a an overarching or an over, overarching rather factor. So, you know, if you hired someone to come and do your plumbing and they said they'd never 
done any plumbing, you probably wouldn't let them start tinkering with your pipes. Um, so it's interesting that in the fitness industry, you know, if I showed up and my personal trainer was 10 stone overweight, I wouldn't have a huge amount of confidence that they would be able to coach me because they haven't yeah. demonstrated necessarily that they've they've gone through that. And I guess it, it comes down to um, people having, you know, being competent, really. Yeah. I, I think, you know, when you turn up to a One Rebel interview, we, we, we assume you've got the qualifications and you've had some level of experience, but not always. Not You don't always have to have experience. But what's clear is that we, we can train your skills, but we can't change your attitude. So most of the conversation is going to be about you, your attitude, how you fit into the culture, how you, how you look after people, how much you care about what you're doing. Um, you know, I always try and speak to, the, to our team about not imagining looking after the people who are super fit, but what's, what's it like to remember being that person who was scared and intimidated about coming through our door? You know, put yourself in the shoes of someone who hasn't gone on a summer holiday because they don't, they don't feel comfortable enough in their body to get on a flight and sit by the pool. You know, those are the people who I, I'm much more interested in looking after because there's so much more to life they can enjoy when they get to that point that they're happy with themselves. Forget what other people think about them, but get to the point where they're happy and confident. That's, that's an amazing gift that we can take part in achieving with that person, um, but not if we're arrogant or we patronize or pander. Mm. You're the CEO of One Rebel and you've obviously been there since since day one. How difficult has it been to go from a very lean team with one club to scaling the business to, to what is it, 250-odd employees? Yeah. Um, yeah it's, How do you retain that that deep sense of care and family and, and culture in a business that has scaled really relatively quickly, sort of seven seven odd years well, to, to being a lot bigger? I think the honest answer is we, we did it, or I did it very badly at the beginning. You know, my, when, I, when I came back to London, um, you know, my experience was a fractious relationship with my previous business partner. And before that, you know, the military and, and stockbroking, which were very, you know, egotistical and toxic environments where if you shout at people, you often get got what you wanted. And I think for the first couple of years of running One Rebel, there was an element to which I was a bit dictatorial. And it was actually my business partner, Giles, who took me aside and said, listen, people are afraid of you, which, which uh, you know, was, was a disaster for me. I, I was, you know, hurt by that sentence. I couldn't believe people would you be afraid of me. <laughs> I just, I just, I felt you. Know, God, you. Why, why, why would I? I would never want you to the front of house people to be afraid of me. But what I forgot I was doing is I would come into a club, and if I saw a piece of litter on the floor, you know, first thing I would do would make a fuss about that. And you know, it was it was Giles and also one of our managers, Claire, who took me aside at one point and said, you know, have you said hello to everybody before? focusing on the negative yeah. and, and I was just making silly mistakes like that and as but you know one thing I think you've got to be as a leader is it is not grip onto bad ideas just because they were yours and so you know I listened to what the advice to the advice that people were giving me and I and I changed almost 180 degrees I'm sure there's a lot of room still to improve but you know the last few years we as a as a team have been massive around culture and looking after each other communicating to one another and and I'll be honest with you, life has just got and business has just got much easier ever since. And now we have a, a team that we we retain that has, that's not really having much turnover what, at all. Um, I, I obviously I feel like I've got a friendship with most of my team. I think there's 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 a, a professional boundary, but still we are very close. We communicate so much. We go for drinks often together. Um, 
you know, the One Rebel Christmas Party has become a, a you know, big feature in most people's social calendar. And it's just become so much easier as, as a CEO because everybody knows what I want, but they also know I look after them and I care for them. And so mm. I now have a lot of very motivated people who, who, who you know, work their nuts off and enjoy what they do. But I, I think you know, to, to, to one of your points about, I guess, you know, something that's useful for people to think about is back in the early days when I was maybe being a bit more dictatorial, I was also making you know, 50 to 100 decisions a day. And I think if you're that person and you're trying, and, and that gives you a good feeling because it feels like you're busy then and doing a lot, you're probably missing the point. Because at that point, you don't have an inspired team who are getting jobs delegated to themselves and therefore opportunities to prove that they've done something well. You're also probably mm. a bit of a control freak. And I was watching um, a clip with Jeff Bezos just the other day, and he was saying that if senior management makes three good decisions a day, that's enough. And because it's about the quality of decisions, not the quantity. Because whenever you're making a huge quantity of decisions, think about what you're taking away from everyone else who you're meant to be inspiring. But as a, as a leader, there might be three or so opportunities a day where you can make a change that other people can't at this stage just yet. And, and mm. that, that, I think, changed a lot in the way I operate as well. But delegation is a really, really hard thing to do, right? Like, I think it's, you know, you can sort of... Uh, You've got to hire the right people, which can be, I think, you know, both of us can say we've made good and bad hires and that can be really painful. And there's a huge trust element. You sort of have to accept that people are going to make uh, make mistakes as as you've done. But you've got to sort of sit on your hands a bit and let them get on with it. Well, you, you, you're, you, what you're talking about is 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 the differentiation between jobs other people can do and the things that only you can do. And if you're doing everyone else's job, no one's doing yours. Yeah, well, that and, and or doing theirs. I mean, yes, you're right. The problem with delegation, especially if it's your baby, is you've got to be prepared that they're going to make mistakes. But there should be nothing wrong with that. You know, you can't expect, especially as, as, as a small business growing quickly, that you're going to hire you know, the finished products in every department. Um, mm. But the, the key difference is really is, this: does this person care? If they care, then they're never going to make a mistake on purpose. So you know, they shouldn't feel bad for making that mistake. You know they care. You know that you know that they know they messed up, and they'll never do it again. But but if you grip hold on too tight and never let those mistakes happen, no one ever learns. And also, you need to give people the freedom to come up with their own ideas and get rewarded for them because that's how they get motivated. So to some extent, you've got to let go. But um, I think the smart people realize that the more they let go to you know, talented, caring people, the more your job gets easier and, and, and everybody um, benefits from it. Um, and it creates a much nicer environment also than being sort of dictatorial. So there, there's a strength in showing that, that, that you're, you're sort of, there's, there's a vulnerability in the ecosystem that gets strengthened when everybody goes through it together. Um, you know, mm. going through adversity is one of the key things I always talk about because, you know, they say and no one ever climbs a mountain, no, no one ever learns some, anything climbing a mountain on a sunny day, right? You've got to go through the tough times to get stronger. Mm. And so if someone in my team makes a mistake, and they never, and they didn't they did it in the best intentions. Fine, let's move on. What did we learn? Okay, great. Let's go again. Did you take very personally negative feedback in the early days, and do you take it less personally now if someone has an, a negative experience? You know, for example, for me, if I come to One Rebel and there are no lavender towels, <laughs> it sends me into a blind rage. Do you um, 
have you learned to detach a little bit, but while still caring, or does it still really bother you when someone doesn't have the best experience? No, I'm, I'm a complete nightmare when it comes to that. I, I mean, mean, it was a loaded question. Yeah, I, mean, I just like I knew. Yeah, I just wanted to tee you up. I'm absolutely <laughs> terrible. I mean, I, I can't really enjoy um, a workout at one level because I'm just there looking at the air conditioning, listening to what the instructor's saying, looking, uh, you see what the customers are doing or saying next to me. It's it's intolerable. <laughs> um, but again, I've. But you've done some- a lot of challenges through the club, right? Like you've done, create, can you tell me more? You did some ludicrous run. You've done 12 week stuff. I don't have any details, clearly. What, me personally or? Yeah, you and Giles have done sort of physical challenge. So we, we did this one where we did um, the seven club challenge, myself and Lewis or Opsky, where we had to run from each club and do a class at each club. Um, one after another in a day. And I, 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 I did this silly one where it was 20 sessions in four days. Um, and look, it, you know, they were just silly, you know, things bet- between us and the Showing team. But, yeah, 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 but, but it was fun and it was great to see everyone get behind it. And, you know, it, it, these things are silly, but it was a lot of fun. But yeah, I, I think I, 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 you know, I'm, I'm just so glad I don't own a restaurant because I'd never be able to eat there. I'll just be completely obsessed with what's happening with you know the the knives and forks in different positions and the clean glasses and what that waiter's doing, what that guy's doing. Um, I'd be terrible. Mm. So um, you can't be in seven places at once. Yes, so yes. you physically like it's a great business model for you. <laughs> yeah, I think my team um, enjoy that as well. Yeah, they're thrilled. Um, you talk. You've talked a lot about um, or resilience and adversity. How important for you have the physical challenges been? You mentioned climbing mountains but you've sort of had a real thirst to get out and achieve is that is that um an important thing for a founder to redline time to go and do things for yourself separate to the business uh, look i think that there are, there are there are plenty of challenges right that you that you that you can either choose to do or that are thrown at you in your life and i think one of the problems with I think especially sort of the Western world, if you like, is that we have a lot of comfort in our day-to-day life. When you're too comfortable, small things can feel much bigger. When you've gone through a level of adversity, be it from putting yourself out there to, you know, climbing a mountain or, you know, doing a trek or whatever it is, or if you've gone through adversity that you weren't that wasn't your choice, like maybe you lose a loved one or you have a, a you know, terrible illness – when you go, when you experience those things, it puts all the smaller things into perspective. And I don't think your know, life is tough enough. Things will be thrown at you. It's your choice if you want to seek out challenges or whether you're, whether you're dealing with ones that are quite recent that weren't your choice. But I do think if you try and always wrap yourself in cotton wool and not expose yourself to anything tough, then the small things feel very tough. I feel now through the exposure I've had to certain things in my lifetime, lifetime that not much can knock me off my stool. You know, if some bad news comes, okay, fine. We work out how to deal with it. It can't be as bad as that that happened before. And I think that's the sort of strength that you get through either you know, exposure by choice or by just going through something that you didn't choose, but at least you you came out of the other end. And so, you know, whatever it is, I just think in life and in business, especially there's going to be curveballs all the time. And, um, and if you panic, everyone else is going to panic around you. So how do you develop mm-hmm. that strength to be calm and, uh, and, and clear headed? Um, you know, those are the things that I suggest that one can do. 
Yeah, I mean, I've known you for a long time now and I've never met anyone who has such an unrelenting Mm. commitment to finding positivity amongst often what can be quite challenging scenarios. So, I mean, it seems it seems to be working. Do you well, think if, that... If, if it's not working for real, it's a great placebo that you can tell yourself and believe yeah, it anyway. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, exactly. Um, everything will be fine. Um, but yeah, I think we talked a little bit about Instagram, but, you know, there's been a generational um, skew with regards to sort of snowflake generation that perhaps haven't experience those things and you know their biggest trauma is not getting enough likes on Instagram I think do you have you found it interesting managing what's presumably quite a young sort of active motivated team and and sort of understanding their sensibilities and the things that impact them that may well be how old are you now 45 (laughs) 37 thank you um yeah I mean that that's I think that's why over time you know I I spent a lot of time when I interviewed people asking people about sort of you know what they've gone through in the past um because it gave me an insight into how they would react when things don't go our way look I mean look you know a year ago everyone was working and everything was fine and now we've gone into a once in a generation circumstance which will have a long-term effect on a lot of people's mental health a lot of people's careers a lot of people's finances um so it's been incredibly challenging now the way my team have gone about it has been utterly inspiring they are all so productive and hopeful and positive you know i've got um team members who were being paid very well as instructors who've been sainsbury's delivery drivers i've got people in head office who've been volunteering in vaccination centers now that 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 fills me with so much pride and and happiness but there would be a lot of people who would just think oh poor me and and hunker Mm. down and i think hopefully this year needs will will show people that you can't do that you know you, you can't just sit around doing nothing and feeling sorry for yourself you've got to you've got to get at it um and mm. maybe maybe the the, the the generation of snowflakes if you like won't be referred to that way after this pandemic because there'll be a lot of you know, toughened minds off the back of it I, I hope that's something that will come from it i'm not sure if it will but i hope so um it's a great equalizer isn't it for, well it isn't it isn't it isn't, it isn't it isn't i think everybody's gone through something but it's been devastating for people who are less affluent i mean you know you, if you if you've got money and you're sitting in your place in the countryside with a garden and a four-bedroom house compared to you know a, a mother of three in a council flat trust me that this year has been a very different experience right um so i think yeah, it's been it's devastating for how it's 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 highlighted the inequalities in wealth in particular um but hopefully at least at least it's highlighted it so that people do something about it but um yeah, yeah. The, the experience of the rich and poor has definitely been very different yeah and it it it, it does exacerbate that division yeah um completely for sure um did you i want to just ask you um a couple more questions i'm assuming you're not that busy this afternoon given that the gym's- don't, don't, don't worry i've got plenty of time for you emily anything oh how kind um you are a business that has required capital to expand. Um, can you talk to me a little bit more about your fundraising journey, um, how and when you decided you needed money, what the sequencing was, and then a little bit more about how you identified who you wanted money from and, and how that helped you grow? Yeah. Well, the first thing we did was we um, we crowdfunded. We, we, we looked at various private equity companies, but realized, you know, they would want to take a majority stake in the business. And, you know, the journey wasn't going to be particularly fun, let's say. And we crowdfunded in the early days of crowdfunding. And I, and I liked it, the process a lot. And it, it also meant something to me. 
as sort of a founder and CEO when your friends are putting in money. You know, it becomes pretty serious when you've got friends putting in you know, money that they wouldn't necessarily normally think of to do. Yeah. yeah, I mean, some of them refer to it as uh, my donation page rather than the investor page, but still, <laughs> uh, you know. It's, it doesn't matter if we get to see the money, James. But it's great because there's a real connection then with your investors and a responsibility as well. Um, as the business grew, we realized we needed probably some more strategic investments. So we got a pseudo sort of private equity house called Codex Capital um, in, invested in the business. Now, you know, we were lucky that I... I I knew these the guys who ran it for quite some time. Um, one of them was working at Investec Bank when Fitness First um, listed on the stock market. And age 16, I did an internship there and made him coffee. So I've known him for quite some time. So at least he knew what he was dealing with as well. But I, I think in terms of your decision-making, I guess if I was to give any types of advice, first of all, whatever business plan you put out there and, you, and whatever projections you make, you know, minus it by... 25% and if it still makes money then go for it but you've got to recognize there's going to be screw-ups along the way um, and if you oversell and under deliver to investors you'll pay for it in the long run also to not think so much about valuation valuation is for vanity the, the real the only time valuation really ever matters is when you sell the business but if you if you try and go for too high a valuation when you're raising money and then you disappoint in the year after or the year after that and have to do what's called a down round you suddenly have an investor base that's not so supportive and so i think you know to be a bit more humble in your aspirations and valuation when you're raising money but knowing that if you deliver for these shareholders in the future You'll, you know, when you start the next business, you'll be able to come back to them and they'll believe in you and trust you. So building trust with your partners and investors is a huge journey, a, a huge thing and part of the journey that I think a lot of young founders especially don't think about too much when they're, they're going through the first fundraising because they want a dazzling valuation, which you know, think they think means something, but at the time it doesn't. And how important is it to have different skills to your co-founder when you start oh, there's, there... yeah, there's this there's this one phrase which is um if both partners agree one's not necessary or something like that i think i think you, you I, look i think there's lots of different partnerships my partnership with giles is we have different skill sets and different interests but on key things we we, we make decisions together now the reality is there's probably been times where it's not been as fun for both of us because there's been that tension of, of we both care so much about the business, but, you know, who, who cares the most, if you like? And and you will have arguments and discussions like that. But the, the great thing about our partnership is we could be having a blazing row one minute and then five minutes later we could be having a glass of wine and you kiss the maid up. And I think it's very important that you can have that ability to say what you need to say, but, but also not be personal and you move on. And we've we, our communication like that is, is really wonderful, but I, I certainly think you you want the different the two partners to bring different skill sets as well, um, because otherwise you there's just too much. Uh, you know, you, why well, would you want to hire someone? To, well, exactly. To do the other stuff, right? Yeah, exactly. And also, I think you don't want to be just all on top of each other all the time. You want to have these two things that you can do that also you can you can the other person can be proud of and happy about as well you know when Giles does something amazing or if I do something good it's nice to hear Giles say well done and vice versa and I think that's needed in mm -hmm. a partnership because you, you leadership is a lonely place you've really only got yourselves to kind of give yourselves a pat on the back because no one else is going to do it for you so I, I would recommend having a business partner I would recommend 
having one where just the communication can be effortless. I think if if you argue, and much like, I guess, a boyfriend-girlfriend scenario, if you argue and days are lost because no one can move on, it's not a particularly healthy environment, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, you obviously are a successful man in business. You also are very busy. What one piece of advice would you give to someone who has either had their entrepreneurial spirit um, ignited as a result of the pandemic or is very in the very early stages of starting a business what piece of advice would you give to someone listening who was in that situation well I think if you're first starting off um, you know the, the, the key I think characteristics of, of of entrepreneurs in particular are you know level of self-belief and tenacity but also recognizing you've sort of got two ears and one mouth I mean you have to you have to when you come up with an idea believe that um, believe that you've got something to offer that's different to other existing businesses, but also to have the capacity when people say, actually, that's not going to work, to go through it. And also to hopefully be able to inspire a team that you certainly recruit to follow your vision, but also to have the humility to be able to listen to them as well and recognize that sometimes you've got to be stubborn on the goal, but flexible on the tactics. What What lovely advice. It sounds... Sounds like you may have said that before, James. Um, it came out so, so well tiered, so beautifully. Um, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you taking a chunk out of your day um, when you could have been, you know, grooming that beard or, um, or twiddling your thumbs. But I'm very excited to return to One Rebel, as I'm sure many, many other people would be. And your team are very lucky to have had you to lead them through the last year um, and, and onwards. So thank you for making the time. Thank you very much. And we cannot wait to see you back in the clubs. Mm-hmm.